Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by Zipcar. Earn $25 of free driving credit at joinzipcar.com slash weekend. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This week, we're roughing it. We're going to be talking about the games that we play when we do not have our optimal, nice, super cozy setup. Now, Rob, I know you just had a just just a little bit of a move uh, across the entire country, and that's what prompted this topic. So do you want to start us off with how you've been roughing it lately? Uh, yeah, I, I do. But but first, actually, I need to let you know because there was just a little bit of noise on my on my track. Uh, you could hear some some footsteps pounding upstairs. I'm in a new building. It's uh. usually not quite this loud. But let me tell you. Uh, speaking of roughing it, let me tell you about the crazy bullshit that's uh, happening in my building today. Oh um, yes. Apparently, there's a Pokemon visiting the apartment upstairs. Oh my goodness. And these <laughs> these motherfuckers, <laughs> I think, called their friends. Because in the last, like, hour and a half, uh, there has been, like, a cavalcade of people <laughs> running up and down the stairs giggling, uh, talking about uh, the Pokemon they're capturing. Oh, my God. Uh, so, I, I, I can only imagine. I, I'm not playing it myself. <laughs> but I can only imagine this is entirely about Pokemon Go. Yes. Uh, which has uh, suddenly, like, it, it's kind of been heartwarming to see. And it was it was a lot more heartwarming before a Pokemon visited my apartment building and <laughs> turned it into a hive of, uh, of of activity. Oh, my God. But it, it's still kind of cool how Pokemon Go has kind of, like, infused play into all these spaces and, like, turned them from, like, humdrum every day into something sort of magical. I just wish... There wasn't currently one in my building. I have to say, I am not playing it either, but my girlfriend is, and she has been having a, a, a whale of a time with this game. She also today, um, this is because, you know, you get to be sort of privy to these amazing things, wrote about a, a young girl, a high school girl who was looking for a Pokemon in Pokemon Go and literally stumbled uh, into a dead body. Like, like actually in real she life. a dead Pokemon? A dead human body in the real world. What like in a river. Floating in a river. <laughs> she was looking for a water Pokemon and like was, you know, oh, okay, it's it's over here. It's going to be over here. She was just like looking near the river and there was a, a floater, a oh dead my guy. God. Is there still like, <laughs> is Law and Order still a thing? Because like that's going to be, that's going to be a show, right? It has like, that's, to be. That's going to be it. Everybody was kind of joking that the dark twist was, you know, that he was looking for a Pokemon too, and he fell in because he wasn't looking where he was walking or something. But I mean, you know. that's that's almost inevitable, right? Like that's I mean, the creepy pasta getting into this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I personally like. I think uh, police should probably look into what that water Pokemon was was up to. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, I mean, he ain't nowhere to be seen. That's but there's, shady. There's a stiff in the river. <laughs> It's some shady stuff. It was probably a ghost Pokemon and wanted to lure him into the underworld or something. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, like, like I gotta go because I need to write my movie <laughs> script, uh, like, like right now. Uh, no, oh my god, that, yeah, that's 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 pretty crazy. So it's just it's it's a funny thing though. Um, here's okay. So now I'm just gonna we're gonna I'm already derailing this podcast. Oh, that's Pokemon right. Go 
do you do the things that you normally get to do with Pokemon? Like, once you have these things in your phone, is it a Pokemon game? Like, can you train these things? Can I you, like, so. play with them? Or is it mostly just to catch them all and, and that's it? I think you actually level them up and train them and, and get them into fights. Now, again, I, I actually haven't been playing it. I've just been sort of following it through osmosis of, you know, my girlfriend writing about this sort of ridiculous story. And, of course, being on the Internet and just seeing all the pictures of, like, oh, there's a Charmander on your toilet, you know, kind of goofy stuff like that. Yeah, um, the, the Polygon had a really good gallery yeah, of, of like, good stuff. The one, in the, uh, the one in the funeral home cracked me oh, up. That was good. These, are these all shops? Are these all Photoshop jobs? Or, like, is... Like, I've had people tell me, like, no, the Pokemon are showing up in, like, weird-ass places. They really are, I think. I think they're they're legitimately showing. I mean, now, certainly there are shops, too, you know, when they're just put on, like, people's faces and things like that. But, yeah, they're showing up in some weird, rude places as well. Trying to go to the bathroom and you got a pervy Pikachu in there. That's, you know, that's weird. It's like I mean, my it's, cat. It's, it's better than the other things you'd find find waiting for you in the bathroom. I mean, you're, you're, you're not wrong about that. Uh, which, sure. which I guess brings us back to roughing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, and for, we'll, we'll get into this on, on another day because uh, yeah. I actually want to tie it into a different topic for another day and possibly involving a guest, uh, you, you know. That's my secret nice. wish anyway. The machinations of the podcast. Yeah, exactly. Here. <laughs> like, you sort of pull back the curtain there and, and, yeah. and let you see uh, the, the inner workings of the podcast. Ooh. But for um for a variety of reasons, I have uh I have recently moved to Los Angeles. Yes. And which is, has been hell on the podcast. Because the entire point was that we were both East Coasters. <laughs> and we had a really good thing going for a few months there. And now yeah. it's back to like, well, three hour time difference. How do, how do we swing this? Yeah, uh, it's pretty the, funny. When we were talking about doing this podcast. I lived in California and you came out there, uh, I think for a wedding or something. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. We were, we we were a, like, yeah. oh, it's going to be so cool. We're going to, I'm going to swap coasts. And now we have literally swapped coasts at this point in time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, yeah. I, I think our podcasting hours might get a little weirder from here. Yeah. But So I moved to California and the last couple of weeks I was in an Airbnb. Mm. And. As is the case with many Airbnbs, uh, it did not quite live up to the billing. Yeah. Uh, many things were promised. A uh, few things were delivered. And one of those things was a viable internet connection. Oh, God. Um, what I was doing was basically playing like whack-a-mole as to <laughs> which internet connection that was locally available. Uh, and I'm pretty sure they were just all randomly like unsecured connections. <laughs> I don't oh, know. Oh, my God. Uh, which yeah. one was going to be working that day. So... I had my PlayStation with me, but I couldn't, like, I could intermittently watch things uh, mm. via stream, and I certainly couldn't play anything multiplayer. I couldn't couldn't download any files of any significant size, so I was really limited in what I could play. So, really, that was a chance for me to sort of get acquainted with the games I've, I've well, not bought, but the games I've gotten uh, via PlayStation Plus. Sure. Uh, yes. Sort of, you know, make make my acquaintance with with uh, you know this this pile of PlayStation shame. <laughs> and a weird thing started to happen uh, while I was sort of roughing it in this kind of crummy uh, West Side Airbnb. <laughs> I was actually having a lot of fun, Ooh. and like more fun maybe playing games than I have had lately back home in my office with like my full rig. And yeah. that sort of got me thinking like, this isn't the first time I've had this happen. Like one of our first shows when we talked about, um, there was a Christmas episode. 
I talked about years ago, like how I sort of just had to make my peace with the fact we had a crappy gaming PC and I just started playing like old games on it uh, and just embraced that limitation. And it was some of the best gaming of my life. This was a similar sort of thing where it was like, no, couldn't, couldn't log on and play anything. Couldn't get anything new. Um, so it was, what did I have locally available that I could play alone and not feel the least impaired doing it? <laughs> and uh, so sort of the official game of my, of my Airbnb stay probably was Zombie, uh, which was Zombie U yeah. uh, originally. And it was on PlayStation Plus, I want to say back in May. And it was like the perfect game for those circumstances. Because like it is a very slow paced game. Sure. Uh, it is a very deliberate game. Like the like like a lot of good zombie survival games, uh it's it's all about uh managing resources and like staying calm. Like mm-hmm. one zombie is not a threat, but if you don't take it seriously, it can still get very bad very fast for you. Uh, when you're getting overrun, it's all about sort of staying calm and having the presence of mind to like sort of uh, effectively kite the encounter, right? Like trade yeah. space for time, know, you know who to attack, all that stuff. Um, so it's a game where like the levels themselves I don't think are that big, but it's a game that feels very big because every space is infused with so much danger and so much like tactical possibility that it just feels like a very rich world that you're learning how to navigate. Uh, and I found that like tremendously exciting. As you've been speaking about this, I've just keep thinking about like, yeah, choice paralysis kind of makes us miserable. <laughs> we always feel like, Oh, I could be playing 10 other awesome things. It kind of ruins a lot of the experience. So when you're actually like, okay, here's my limited set of games. I didn't actually play zombie U, although I do, I am a, a Wii U lover as we've discussed many times. And I know that was sort of one of the early, really awesome games on the Wii U. So I'm pleased to hear it also made the transition pretty nicely to PS plus. I think your point there is very important. It's not just that like we have all these games and it's like choice paralysis. Um, I think it's also the sense of obligation and I don't just mean like, Oh, we're professionals. We've got to do this. I mean, like if you just have access to any sort of new stuff, like there's this pressure of like, Hey, enjoy that new thing. You've got it. You should yeah. be playing it. Like, why aren't you doing that thing? When you when your options are limited, the it's like that that pressure is taken off of you, right? Yeah. It's it's just like, look, no, here's here's what's on tap, and you're just gonna have to make the best of it. And actually, that ends up putting me in a very good place because, like, I'm sitting there in Steam. There's this constant like, okay, this game is good. <laughs> but is it the most oh yeah 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 what's um there's the calvin and hobbs comic where oh, it's yes. like sunday and they're talking about like the best way to like use sunday because in a few yeah. hours it's going to be over and like calvin is talking about like well, we could be doing this we could be doing that what's we have to squeeze the most optimal amount of fun out of the time remaining in this weekend and the, the punchline is like hobbs is like this doesn't seem like th- that this much fun at all and calvin's like well when you're when you're working this hard to have it, it's, it you know having fun isn't fun <laughs> yeah um i think that's how it can feel sometimes on steam because you're like okay well you're playing a game you don't think of it in these terms but you know on some level i think in my head i'm like look you got a few hours here and this game is like a solid, like you'd be given, like say it's a say it's a seventy-eight on the personal enjoyment score. <laughs> yeah, come on, there's something out there that like with these few hours you could probably be playing a ninety. 
yeah. Why don't you, why don't you dig into that pile and, and see what you can find? And that kind of ruins it. Whereas here, it's just like, shit, zombies, zombies are really cool. This is unexpectedly delightful. And it's the only game in town. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to love the one I'm with. Yeah, no, it, there's so much to be said for that. Like, I honestly, just, just thinking about it, I, I'm thinking like, maybe I should just limit myself to games that start with A and that's it for a little while, you know, for like a week and just kind of artificially impose roughing it on myself. Maybe <laughs> that would actually sort of help because I, you know, I certainly get this as well. I get this sort of fatigue about like, I gotta play this, I gotta play this, I gotta play this, I gotta make sure that I'm, I'm enjoying things so much and Man, that's not enjoyable. Games games should be, you know, they should be an experience that you enjoy, at least on some level. And this entire this entire time I um been thinking about when I made my cross country trip not too long ago. I guess it was like eight months ago now. Um but my last days in San Francisco, which are a really emotional blur. I this is not a secret. I really was upset about leaving San Francisco. I like that place a lot. I made a little game about it, even that I released this week. Released meaning whatever, put on a you know free itch.io page. But you know, I liked it a lot there, and I was very sad and very upset. And at one point, all my stuff had been moved out of my apartment, and I was sleeping on the floor, literally on like a sleeping bag. And I pretty much had like my computer and my 3ds, and I um. My girlfriend knew I was having a really, really tough time with the move, and she bought me Animal Crossing New Leaf and uh, another Animal Crossing game, but New Leaf is kind of the one that that stuck, and holy shit, I played, <laughs> I think I played something like, I don't, I don't even know, I don't even know how many hours, but I played many, many, many hours of that game. Uh, sort of all last fall, really kind of all throughout the the transition from San Francisco to New York. But um, in that first, that sort of last night in San Francisco, I played that game for like 10 hours because I couldn't sleep. I was too upset to sleep. And I was just sitting there sort of crying in my sleeping bag, playing this this joyful, happy little game that's all about making a home. <laughs> and I know exactly how cheesy that is and, and how cheesy it sounds, but it comforted me so 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 much and i feel like you know 3ds gaming is sort of the definition of uh the games that you can bring anywhere you know you can rough it with with that sort of thing completely you could actually literally rough it with the 3ds you know bring it camping or something it's you know nice little portable device um but i played that game uh god so so much on that sort of last night and in, in those last couple of days in san francisco and i played it uh so much on my very first day on the east coast um, weirdly enough, I, I sort of moved all my stuff. I, I moved physically to my parents' house for a month, but I needed to go down to uh, Washington, D.C. for a few days for a Polygon thing. And I, I was sleeping in my sister's apartment. And I remember also sort of crying and, and, and the only way I could sleep was literally playing this game, like sitting there playing New Leaf hearing the, the little cute songs and, and, you know, hanging out with my little fake animal buddies. And this does sound really pathetic, actually, now that I'm saying it out loud. But, hey, that's what it was. It was very, very comforting to me um, no, at I mean, a time I where I needed that comfort. <laughs> I don't think it does. And I feel like Animal Crossing in particular is one of those games that, like, most of the things I read about it, like, when people were, like, really engaged deeply with that. Yeah. About half the things I read about it, it sounds like actually a very bittersweet game. 
And I think it that's is. because, like, maybe it's not meant to be that way, but I think when people are most likely to engage with it on a deep level, it's because that game is communicating a message that is very powerful and resonant at that moment in someone's life. Absolutely. And yeah. so it's like, it feels like Animal Crossing for, for adults, if <laughs> maybe not for kids, but for yeah. adults, Animal Crossing is a place you go when something is lacking somewhere else. Yeah. And it provides it. And I find that that's kind of beautiful. I'm a big believer in that series, even when it's not at its best, because it's the entire narrative even explicitly is about making a home in a new place. And, you know, you start out on on a vehicle and, you know, you say what your name is and whatever else. And, and it's here you are in your new town, in your new home. It's your new house. And even on that completely sort of baseline level that that completely you know it's the metaphor is right there in the in the actual text of of like here you go now it's time to make friends and and be in a new place and yeah it's it is actually really beautiful and really nice and really 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 hard moving is 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 hard you know that you just did it you're in the process right now this um is, <laughs> i will say this is the scariest move yeah uh, of my life because like yeah. It's tied up with a major career change. Sure. My partner, you know, isn't coming out here. Yeah. Uh, at least, you know, not for not not for a while. It's a move I've never really had to make before because it's like this is a complete I am totally alone on this one. Yeah. Uh and so and that's a very different feeling. Like you get like you get to a new place and it, you know and there's people in LA that that I'm close with. I have sure. I have new coworkers and th- th- all of that is true. But it doesn't change the fact that, like, you don't know the city. Yeah. And you go home and you are totally alone. Yeah. And you have no idea where to go or what to do. Um, I mean, man, man, why didn't I should have bought? I need to, I need to run out and, and go get uh, Animal Crossing. I, I seriously recommend it. <laughs> well, that actually it brings, it brings up another point, though. Yeah. Which is, um, I think maybe that's another reason sometimes this, this form of gaming can be really resonant when, you, when you're sort of not set up the way you are normally once you've finished making a home. Um, one of the first things that always gets put up whenever I change places uh, is, is the gaming rig. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah. It's, and, and it's not always like, you know, sometimes things have to be unpacked first, but like the moment that thing is up and running, it may not be connected to anything, but the moment is it is at least up and running and I can sit down and play something. Instantly, I feel 50 times more at home. Yeah. I feel 50 times like less alone because it is just, it is a touchstone. Everything else is different, but here's this thing. Here are your favorite games. The rest is going to come with time. Yeah. And so that's always been like, and and I think PC gaming actually has been particularly nice about this because there's an entire ritual around like getting, you know, (laughs) PC gaming has so many peripherals. You have to like do your cable management rituals. You have to (laughs) do all this stuff. Uh, Maybe something came loose and you got to check connections. But once it's all running and you sort of press the button and it's always a little terrifying, right? Because you're like, I hope like, I hope nothing got like too badly shaken during the move. Oh, yeah. It it hesitates before you hear the fan kick on and like the little like beep of the the motherboard. Uh, Yeah. So that's always a really powerful moment. And I think, you know, it's probably different from person to person, but for me, like setting up the ability to play games in a new place is this really powerful act 
of making something my home because this is something I care deeply about. And it is an act of like settlement yeah, uh, as opposed to just like stopping. Right. It's a really important thing. And the, the whole sort of ritual aspect of it is also like it's it's kind of a good reminder that these kinds of rituals are really important for us to feel kind of safe in a lot of ways and feel yeah. like this is this is how I make myself feel like things are OK, especially when you're kind of rattled from from moving or, or you know, being in a new place. There's all sorts of stress involved with that. So it's like yeah. kind of like this nice way of being like, OK, step A, step B, that sort of thing. It's it's. It's good to have that and it's comforting to have that. And I think it's important that we we all kind of know what those things are in our lives. And I think it's really rad that yours is tied into gaming. It's like, okay, here we go. Now I can have these set of experiences and choose from these set of experiences, you know, especially if they're kind of limited as you're, you know, saying earlier, like, okay, I've got these six games or, or whatever it is. And I'm just going to go. I'm just going to enjoy this. I'm going to talk about it probably. I'm going to be completely in this moment and that's going to make me feel like myself again. Uh, so that's, that's really cool. I, uh, I've been spending a lot of time on an ambulance lately. So I guess my roughing at gaming in, uh, in that aspect has been a whole lot of drop seven. Um, <laughs> I have, I have reignited my love affair with, with the drop seven, which is a long, torrid affair that has never really ended. It always, you know, it, it kind of it's it, your May December romance. It really is. Yeah. Every every damn time. Um and you know, on the ambulance, it's completely unpredictable. Some nights are absolutely insane and we have calls, you know, all the time and you never really have a moment to rest. And other times you get a little bit of downtime and you know everybody's kind of on their phone and kind of like, oh yeah, I'm on Facebook or whatever. And I'm like, oh getting high scores and drop seven just like I was six years ago you know <laughs> like it's it, it's a comfort to me in some ways as well so I suppose I suppose it's about comfort when we talk about sort of rough it gaming um which I think is is a quite a nice thing and quite a nice thing to have and to know that you have kind of at all times I, I think something else that can be really cool is that this sort of gaming tends to be disconnected from a lot of the other stuff that defines modern gaming yeah you know we talk about online connectivity and all the ways games try to remind you that like you're supposed to have not just the relationship with this game but the entire ecosystem of yeah. which it's a part you know, hey, you're enjoying this game. Great. Why don't you engage with our brand? Right. <laughs> or yes. something like that. It's just, just stuff like that. Whereas like here, like I can't like like these games, like there's no ability for me to be distracted by like any pop up notifications. No, like no, no, no friends being like, hey, what's up? How is it? You enjoying that game? None of that's going to happen. So it's just going to be this very like you and the game experience. It's sort of the equivalent of like deep reading. Right, like yeah. when you get really lost in a book, I think I think something similar happens, which is like you don't have like you don't have the option to be distracted by all the same stuff, uh, which is which is an entire thing. I, I like I'm acutely aware that in general I tend to be a happier person when on some level I'm a little bit dis disconnected. <laughs> sure, um, yeah, and I'm sure you've noticed this phenomenon as well. Like I don't want to like I don't want to like get rid of all my internet connection, all that stuff, but it's undeniable like. You know, this, you know, when you get like a week off or something, but for some reason you just can't like log in to, to Twitter or Facebook or you can't like access your friends list or anything like that or email and your access is sporadic. It's always impressive to me, one, 
uh, how much happier and, and in tune my <laughs> life I tend to feel as that goes yeah. on. But then yeah. also how much the world goes on without my having watched its passing, um, which I also find an important thing to be reminded of. Because I think I think a lot a lot of like the way technology is set up right now has this like air of immediacy that like you have to be present for all these moments. But really. It don't make a damn bit of difference. <laughs> so, you know, maybe like maybe just like be more in your moment instead of trying to chase all these others. That's a perfect thought. And actually, believe it or not, that ties completely into a game I've been playing and really, really enjoying lately. Uh, it's a game called Killing Time at Lightspeed uh, by Gritfish, John Kane, who is uh, Idle Thumbs sort of community member. Um, and it is a game. A it game. is it is a wonderful, wonderful, yeah, uh, great name for a great game. And it's all about. Uh, so it's sort of like a if it had to have a genre, I guess you would call it kind of a browser sim or a social media sim. Uh, but the premise of the game is that you are on a spaceship going really, really fast, and because of time dilation. Um, Basically, I think it's something like 40 years will pass, but it's only only 30 minutes to you. So you're looking at your social media, your sort of Twitter slash Facebook thing, and you're looking at the news. And every time you refresh the news, it's been another year or or some huge amount of time has passed. Uh, So you're actually watching in real time your friends have relationships. You're watching your friends change their political views. You're watching as trends happen in the news, in life. You know, there are things, there are sort of very direct allegories to like LGBT rights getting better over time and uh, sentience rights. You know, they they were robots. Now they're sentient beings. And, you know, it's it's a sci-fi game. So there's there's plenty of that stuff happening. Uh, But it is directly, directly attuned to that notion of, being kind of disconnected and kind of watching from a distance, you know, from literally in this game, quite a distance because you're going at uh, at light speed or whatever some approximation of light speed is in this sci-fi universe. Uh, and it's a, it's just a brilliant little game. It was actually going to be my weekend project, but it's okay. I'll have another one. <laughs> I felt like it was worth it to bring it up sort of in this the context of this discussion because it's, it's perfectly in tune with that. And sort of a game the format of a game reminder of that entire subject of like sometimes it's good to disconnect and watch things from a distance sometimes that's healthy and wonderful and healing <laughs> and a good idea to do uh so before we totally move on from this i just want to like underline though danielle you really got to get with zombie or oh zombie man you, you got to get with one of them yeah one because like what it does so damn well is just like I'm always sort of pissed off, but also delighted when one of my character dies. Because the, <laughs> the conceit of this game is that you keep progressing through the campaign, but you use a different set. You do use a different character as your characters die off. So every oh, time right. you die, you wake up as a new survivor, and sort of the voice in your ear, uh, your your sort of minder, is like, "All right, wake up. You got to do this mission." And the first thing you have to do is hunt down uh, your last character. And kill the zombie version that, of that character, and then take all the loot you'd acquired. If you blow that, all that loot is gone forever. Um, so it's kind of a corpse run mechanic. Uh, but the other thing that is really, really cool is like it, it gets at the tedium and terror of yeah. dealing with like zombies. Like, because the thing is, most of the time, what you're encountering is a lone zombie, and they aren't very hard. They're slow. You can hear them coming. They're dumb. 
so you just kind of beat the living hell out of them with a cricket bat and, uh, you know, dispatch them and move on. And that's all fine. But if you blow the timing once or twice, you're dead. You're like totally screwed. Like once the zombie bites you, like that's, that's game. Um, and where it gets really dicey is when a bunch of zombies show up at once, it's extra terrifying because like it happens rarely enough that in between those times, you kind of get out of the habit of like crowd controlling them. You slip oh, yeah. back into like, okay, well, I'm used to these one-on-one encounters. So like when you hear suddenly like a bunch of their like rasping breaths and their sh- breaths and their shambling footsteps, yeah, yeah. uh, there is like this, just this raw terror. Uh, that sort of like floods through your system as you like once again realize like, well, you're probably not prepared for this. Um, oh, and the other thing is, um, it's, it's an interesting case of the controls being a little bit clunky, but maybe in a way that makes it better. Uh, and, like intentionally so. So you can only have sort of in your quick, like call your quick bar or whatever, um, you can tap uh, left or right on the, on the D-pad. Or you can double tap left or right. So really you have access to four different pieces of equipment uh, at any given time. Everything else you have to dive in your inventory. And the game doesn't pause while you do that. So you got to like sit down, take a (laughs) knee, take something out. But the other thing is it's really easy in the heat of the moment to forget what your bindings are. You forget like is the Molotov cocktail double right tap or is a single right tap? Nope, single right tap was your flare. Oh god! Uh, so stuff like that can happen, and so it's one of these things where like the controls give you space to screw up. Yeah, and then that causes space for more panic to set in oh, and for things to go more horribly wrong. <laughs> and so this is a game that gives you like. Gives it gives you, you the, the rope most, to hang you with, basically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah but then oh, it also man. creates these moments of just, like, <sighs> mastering your fear. Like, so I have this moment. There's this scene uh, where you're going through Buckingham Palace. Um, and, look, there's, there's a very silly story here. Uh, but basically, <laughs> the, the queen was sort of hip to the impending zombie apocalypse. Of course. <laughs> uh, and made some plans. But anyway, you're going through Buckingham Palace. And... Uh, so there's this part where you need to get some sort of MacGuffin. And of course, the moment you do, uh, you like pick up this, you, you press this button or something, uh, a bunch of zombies show up. And they come through this long like ballroom. And from long enough away, like it starts out, it's like a shooting gallery. And so you hear them coming. And like I was like, okay, cool. I guess I don't have that much ammunition, but I also don't want to take it. I don't know what's coming. So they start appearing at the end of this uh, at the end of this gallery, and I take out this bolt action rifle, and it's a slow firing thing. But like, if you hit the head, like they drop like a bag of flour. <laughs> so like, it starts out really well. Like the first three like hit this barricade, and they start shambling over it, and like they're dead before they reach the other side. And I'm like, okay, this is gonna be cool. This is awesome. And then they keep coming. Oh god! And then the rifle ammunition starts to run low, and then I hear a zombie coming from the other side, from the door that I thought was safe behind me. It's like oh, open god. now, and like one or two of them have come in, and then some of them have helmets, and headshots won't work. You got to knock the helmet off first. Oh my god! Um, and so it turns into this thing where like you're sort of starting to freak out. One of your I- your quick items is now useless. It's a rifle that you know the fighting is too close in to use, um, and so it's like. 
this frantic, like, okay, get the flare out, get the flare out, like, toss it on the ground to draw zombies, and then, like, okay, uh, shit, I don't have a Molotov cocktail equipped. I need to get into my inventory before that flare burns out. And so it's just this awful panic moment. Uh, in the end, it ends up with me fighting three zombies with a cricket bat. Oh, and God. it's just this constant, like, dance of, like, and your character gets tired, like, gets winded. Um, yeah. and starts to slow down, or at least it feels like it. Um, so it turns into this like frantic like dance with these three zombies. They're all lunging at you, and you're trying to like figure out how to like space them and use obstacles to sort of string them out. So you're fighting them one on one and not three at a time. Uh, and it's just this incredible thing where it's like there are so many games that have tried to operate in this space, but don't quite. Don't quite succeed, right? Because you yeah. turn to this like zombie killing badass, where it's just like, yep, there's a bunch of zombies, and unless things get really like out of control, you'll be fine. Uh, but this was a case where like, yep, it was just like three shambling zombies. Like, it was you know usual thing. It wasn't anything like special, except there were three of them. There's one of me, and it got really scary. Uh, and it's like every every single inch of every level has the potential to turn into a moment like that. Oh, man. Um, and man. so, like, I just, I really, really can't emphasize enough, like, what a cool, atmospheric, and special little game this is. Like, even if you think you're, like, done with zombies, like, man, I've said it before. I will say it again. Like, this is this is the stalker of, of zombie survival games. Nice. It really is. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's quite high praise, I know. Um, coming from you. That's also... God, I just, I can't get over the whole idea of, like, you actually feel like a human in this situation as opposed to, like, a machine that just happens to look like a human with, you know, Chris Redfield's face and massive muscles kind of thing. Like, you feel like a human being who is vulnerable to, you know, which you would be in this situation if it were real. That's, God, that's so, so important for for good horror, I think. Yeah. And man, that sounds awesome. It, it does sound like you had some of the feelings that I felt uh, during Alien Isolation, maybe with this experience, but yeah, I, in a different context, you said of course. About the, but, yeah. What you said about like Alien Isolation feeling like a panic attack yeah. kind of, I think, holds true at places in this game as well. Nice. All right. I think with that, we're done roughing it, and we should go into our mailbag after a word from our sponsor. Rob, I think I need some kind of car, but I don't feel super great about just stealing one off the street. No, Danielle. Despite what video games have told us, committing Grand Theft Auto is not a great look. But, like, I need to get around somehow because the L train is going to be apparently out of service soon, and that's just going to be a real problem. So I, I, I need to do something. You could always try Zipcar. You just sign in, get your card, and you can easily get wheels when you need them from one of dozens of locations right in your neighborhood. Right here in beautiful Bushwick? Just go to joinzipcar.com weekend and you'll get $25 of free driving credit and you can have a car whenever you need one without any of the hassle. That's joinzipcar.com weekend for $25 of free driving credit. Alrighty, we have a couple of emails this week. Just a couple, but I feel like they're they're pretty meaty and good, and we get some good discussion from this. Our first email comes from John. John writes, Hello, R&D. Recently, Nintendo and Atlas released Tokyo Mirage Sessions uh, F.E. Sharp, I guess F.E. Sharp is how you say that. Tokyo Mirage Sessions for the Wii U, a delightfully rare JRPG musical game. 
However, despite how much of a joy it is to play this game, some of, it's rather prob- some of it is rather problematic. Even with all the already well-documented localization changes, the game has kept in some rather racist, sexist, and other troubling elements. Understandably, there is major cult- there are major cultural differences, and this game may be showing an accurate portrayal of Japanese youth idol life. That said, much of the game creates a frictional cognitive dissonance by telling a be-yourself narrative at the same time as it supports othering actions and dialogue. This friction was enough to cause me to put the game down and walk away disappointed in what I was experiencing, to cool down before going back to an otherwise amazing game. When it comes to your enjoyment of media, how do you process the problematic elements? How do you recommend this kind of stuff to others? Cheers, John. Uh, I've seen a little bit of this, uh, especially with regard to Tokyo Mirage Sessions. Um, and I've seen actually one of the most, uh, the things that sort of bothered me the most when I was watching it was there was some, some pretty hardcore fat shaming going on, uh, in the game uh, fairly early on. I know my girlfriend was playing it and there's like a female character who looks at a male character who is, is a larger guy and, you know, she's like, oh my God, were you always this, you know, she, she kind of goes on and on about it. And it's, it's really weird and uncomfortable. And I think it's meant to be, it's supposed to be funny, but it's really kind of, kind of gross, honestly. And uh, Todd Harper was, was writing a little bit about this actually also on Twitter, kind of feeling like, hey, you know, this is a game that's supposed to be joyful and be yourself and be fabulous and sing. And it's kind of like, so why, why are you making these, these really weird, gross, kind of like fat, shamey jokes uh, in it, which, yeah, that put me off quite a bit. Um, in terms of, of where personally I, I find things problematic and where I can kind of draw the line with things, it really depends, <laughs> as with all other things. So you can probably find something problematic uh, in literally everything uh, in the world. Um, I mean, okay, maybe there are some things that, that really don't have any problematic elements, but... If you dig deep enough, th- there's probably something that that could be, you know, taken as as an offensive thing or something that makes people uncomfortable about a lot of things, uh, and there are just kind of massive degrees of that. Uh, so for me, it really kind of depends on: okay, was this piece of media like who made it? First of all, I, I need to know about kind of who made something and sort of what their perspective is, and that's going to affect my ability to to sort of. Um, I guess you could say forgive certain grievances. Um, you know, if I knew a game came from somebody who is sort of a member of a community and they're they're making kind of an in-joke about that community, I, I feel a lot more comfortable with that than somebody who's kind of outside of that. So, you know, an example, you know, like a straight person making gay joke grosses me out a whole lot more than, you know, a lesbian making a, a joke about baby dykes or something like that. Like, to me, it's like, okay, you're from the community and you're, you're you know, you're making some kind of point. There's, there's a little bit more forgiveness there for me. Um, in terms of like certain things bother me a lot and some things don't bother me as much and certain things don't bother me nearly as much as, you know, sort of a lot of, a lot of other sort of leftist feminists. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and I think everybody kind of just has different degrees of um, what bugs them, what doesn't bug them, what they feel is actually like really damaging, what they feel is like, oh, this is kind of gross, but I don't really care. Uh, so yeah, there's there's a lot that kind of goes into that uh, complicated calculus of of problematic things 
Um, <laughs> that was a, a bit of a rambly response, but I think there's a lot there, and I think there's a lot of complexities to what bothers whom and how much it bothers them. Obviously, there's nothing like prescriptive we can say because it's such a. This is entirely about like what pushes your buttons and yeah. what you're willing to overlook and 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 why. Uh, I mean, I'm you know I'm a straight white guy. Uh, yeah. so obviously my button, my buttons tend to be pretty hard to press, uh, because a lot like, I will actually miss a whole bunch of stuff that people from, uh, minority communities, uh, w- would totally be hip to, but I don't, I don't have the eyes for it. I don't have the ears for it. I, I miss, I, you know, I miss the dog whistles. I miss the, I miss the messaging. Sure. Um, but I, I, I think there, there are some things that I, that just leave a really, really awful taste in my mouth. I, I, I think, uh, for me at this point, um, any sort of glamorization of sexual violence uh, yeah. is just one of the things. I'm just, I am so over that. Yeah. Uh, I am so over the trope of, like, the sadistic serial killer who brutally murders, usually women, in these weird sexually charged ways. And that's, and, and horribly enough, that's like an entire freaking genre. Oh, yeah. Uh, out there. But it, 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 like, that is one of those things that I just, uh, like, unless it is done to, to very good effect, unless it's, like, really used, like, thought, like, thought about responsibly and carefully. Uh, I just don't have time for it because it's exploitative. It's schlocky. Yeah. Uh, it's I couldn't think of a compelling story. I couldn't think of a compelling reason to make you care about any of the stuff that's happening here. So tell you what, how about I like? What's the easiest way to show this person is really, really bad? Uh, how about sexually sexual violence? Uh, it's the Ramsey Bolton effect. Oh um, yeah, yes. Like, well, we need a really, we really, we need a really awful villain, and can't be really bothered to do the hard work of creating one. Uh, so let's have a series of graphic rape scenes or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so that's one of my buttons. I just don't like it, to, but <laughs> it, to, to an extent it is, it is an aesthetic choice as much as a moral one. Um, sure. because it's also kind of a canary in the coal mine, right? Like sometimes when you see problematic elements, it's, it like lets you know, also you're not in responsible hands, uh, with a creator. Yes. Uh, that they are using things they don't fully know the meanings of. Uh, that they are defaulting to tropes rather than creating rich characters and stories and motivations. And so it's, you know, it's easy for me to say as someone who's, who's pretty privileged, but I will say one of the other reasons this stuff gets to me is because a lot of times it means like, okay, you're trying to get, you're, you're, you're trying to take a shortcut to doing yeah. something meaningful. Uh, and you're doing it in the worst way possible, and I don't want to be a part of that. Uh, on the other hand, like, man, I will forgive an awful lot if there's if it's done with enough style. Like, and that's <laughs> like, I mean, sure. you know, to this day, like, you know, I, I will I will ride for fight for Fight Club uh, any day <laughs> of the week. Although that's because that's a wildly inter- misinterpreted movie. Uh, yeah. But but like, you know, I, I think for me. Tarantino is the perfect example of this. I love Quentin Tarantino movies. Sure. Like I just, I find them so, uh, so enjoyably directed in so many cases. They are so stylish and yes, almost all of them have like seriously problematic elements, but it's carried off with enough aplomb and, and also usually the problematic elements like, <laughs> Tarantino kind of succeeds in having it is having it both ways at oh, every sure. turn. Yeah. Uh but at the same time, like 
to an extent that actually does matter, right? Like if you're using these tropes, but like kind of knowingly, and there's a question of like what level of meaning is this operating on, I'm willing to entertain the notion that it's not the awful thing it appears to be on the surface, but something else is going on, something deeper. Yeah. Um, maybe I extend that courtesy a little too liberally uh, out of out of uh, privilege and sort of a guilty desire just to watch the awesome thing, which will eventually lead to like, you know, people getting mowed down. But <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's how I tend to, that's how I tend to operate. Uh, I think <laughs> any sort of creative work, you can use a lot of themes. You can do a lot of, you can, you can do a lot of things. You can, you can use some really loaded language if it's used responsible, responsibly and like in a way meant to like provoke thought. Yeah. Um, it may not be necessarily off-putting. It may not be as as bad as it seems. Uh, when it's used naively or indifferently, um, that's 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 tough to take. Yeah, I I certainly agree with you there. That laziness is kind of the one of the most uh, <laughs> uh, important signifiers of of sort of yeah, you're being lazy as opposed to you're actually saying something with that. I was I was going to say that actually I feel similarly uh I really love Hitchcock films. They're oh, God, maybe Hitchcock. the okay. most sexist fucking movies like ever mm. made among them at least, you know. But I love them. I mean for their style, for the the cinematography, for the just the incredible even the dialogue is so sharp in those movies even when it's cheesy it's so stylized and and, and beautiful well, and my god oh no but vertigo. Hitchcock, is such a, Hitchcock uh, is such a good example because here's the thing they are they are those things but at the same yeah. time they have to be aware of it i just watched the man who knew too much not that oh long sure ago. yeah you watch this movie in a while oh yeah but it was a okay. long time it was like in college so we're talking like 12 oh, years okay ago. so yeah. I, just, I just watched it because i got the, the hitchcock collection on blu-ray i watched this movie oh, and nice. i remember really yeah. enjoying it yeah. Uh, didn't enjoy as much of this time. Uh, it was a little clunkier than I remembered. But the thing that really jumped out at me is that the movies, like the heroes, Jimmy Stewart and Jimmy Stewart's got to get his son back and Doris Day's his wife and all this stuff. Yeah. The way he handles the realization their son has been kidnapped is so unbelievably awful. And the scene <laughs> between him and Doris Day, Hitchcock had to have been aware of it. Or if not, Doris Day pulled off an amazingly subversive performance uh, because the horror of that scene isn't just that the, their little boy's been kidnapped, but it's that Jimmy Stewart strips her of all her agency. He sedates her uh, for the first thing, and then he physically restrains her yeah. uh, for the next thing. And the whole scene just takes on this garish, nightmarish cast uh, as like Jimmy Stewart, good old Jimmy Stewart, yeah. uh, just becomes this like terrifying uh, figure as like because he has failed as as a father, he's failed in his role as a protector. Uh, he just exerts this unbelievably uh, patronizing control over his wife, and the movie like shows this pretty un like I don't think there's an ounce of sympathy for it. Like I think Hitchcock's fully hip to how awful this moment is, yeah. and just just amps it up. And so the question is like in a lot of his movies, like and 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 certainly the stories about his weird relationships with his leading ladies. Yes. Uh, there's, there's all of that. But at the same time, I actually find a lot of his movies, it's very difficult to actually make the case that they are, that they are actually sexist works. And, and, and the fact that like maybe his best movie, certainly his favorite 
was Shadow of a Doubt, yeah, uh, which God, is all movie. about a young, bright woman being the person to realize that this this male figure that everyone respects in the community and everyone's exactly family looks up to. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the horror of the movie is that nobody, like, you're a little girl. You're 20 years old. No one gives a shit what you think. Like, you're making it up. You're being hysterical. And that's the, that's the drama of that film. And in the end, she's all alone. Like, there's there are, there are male leads who show up to, like, offer help. But that promise is false. In the end, she's got to save herself. And so, like, Hitchcock, I think that is such a... Such a fascinating case, right? Because, like, yeah. on the one hand, all that stuff is there. On the other hand, there's this body of work where pretty consistently, like, Hitchcock's movies are on some level aware of of sexism, of of the way women are sort of denied agency. Uh, and they use that really effectively. So, I just, yeah, Hitchcock's another perfect example. We, we could have an entire Hitchcock podcast. Because I, I can think of a lot of good examples of films that were just, like, yeah, okay. Like, especially a lot of his very early work, the silent work and, and you know, the early, early stuff where a, a lot of women were honestly just sort of like bodies to be stabbed. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yes, there is so much complication there. And God, it's, God, like I said, we could do an entire podcast about this. Uh, but yeah, I, I like a lot of things that are very, very, very problematic. I like a lot of shit. I like a lot of things that are, they're pretty dumb, honestly. <laughs> um, you want to know a movie I love with all of my heart, and I will just put it on sometimes just because I like the way it looks. I will watch Barbarella any day of the week. You know, there's some problematic elements to that movie for sure. I mean, I honestly think in, That's the one in with terms the boots, of right? Yes, the boots <laughs> and the space, and yeah. there's there's space masturbation and space sex and angels. It's. I, I just think the tone of it is just so goofy and playful that it kind of gets away with things. But well, but yeah, I, again, it's like everybody's got different buttons. Personally, for me, homophobia uh, really bothers me for obvious reasons. And um, when things are really sexist in a patronizing way, that is utterly like that will every, every day of the week that will kind of like get my panties in a twist. I will just what was that? You know, I, I get very mad, you know, and, and, and I hate that I, I, you know, I get very angry. I'm like a little terrier when that happens. I get just, oh, that's, I'm, I'm very angry about that. Um, <laughs> um, and I always want to be the cool, calm, collected person who can, uh, you know, logically argue and, and say, you know, you know, clearly that was an example of sexism. I, I am... I am, you know, not only just I'm offended by that, but but here's why that's a bad thing. And I'm going to argue very logically and reasonably, but I, I get angry and my I get my blood up, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, anyway, in, in, in some, we all have different buttons and I think that's more than fair and that's how it's always going to be, probably. All right. Our next email comes from Kyle in Seattle. Hello, Robin Danielle. I'm really loving the newest Idol cast, and it's great seeing how your two distinct backgrounds and approaches to games collide in a thoughtful and relaxing show. I wanted to write about something that I think both of you might have interesting opinions on. While not all games need to be educational or quote-unquote have a point to be <laughs> valuable, I do think it's clear that games and simulations offer an exciting opportunity in the world of education. Certainly, we see that the world's militaries have invested a lot of money in using games to learn about uncertain combat situations, but how can we move beyond these sort of conflicts? simulations and try to use games to teach us more about the world and less about violence. 
It's a big question, so maybe a smaller one to start the conversation. Have you ever heard of instructors in the classroom using games in interesting ways? Are you aware of any bridges between academia and developers that try to create meaningful educational experiences beyond simply teaching, typing, and arithmetic? How can we foster a relationship between academics and developers in a way to create challenging and thought-provoking games? In an educational world where students are often simply treated as receptacles for knowledge to be deposited, I think games can offer a unique experience for students to be forced to make decisions and learn how to deal with making decisions in a world where all the information you may want is simply unavailable. Thanks again for all the great pods. Kyle. Uh to address one of those questions first, um, I have known many instructors who have actually used games in sort of a creative and interesting way. One one good example that just sort of popped into my head, I know Samantha Allen, uh, she's a writer for the Daily Beast, I believe. Uh, she, uh, when she was a PhD candidate, she would, you know, in, in some of her earlier classes, she would teach systems of oppression, but using Bastion and using sort of, I believe the way what she did was she had everybody play the game, you know, whatever. I don't know how many students, we'll just say 15 students or something. And they got sort of a random role of what modifiers they had to play the game with. Um, and in that game, you know, you can use modifiers that basically make the game more difficult, you know, enemy speed will be faster, you'll have less health, you'll have, you know, all these sort of basically handicaps in the game. And this was meant to be sort of a uh, something they discussed and something that they talked about in context of, you know, sort of what it's like in society to be, you know, the way that systems of oppression affect everybody differently. Here's what it's like if you're black. Here's what it's like if you are, you know, working class. Here's what it's like if you are queer, or trans, you know, that sort of thing, um, which I thought was a really cool way of, of sort of illustrating that concept for, I, I believe, undergrads, I think freshmen. So very, you know, pretty young students. Uh, for that. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's awesome when, when teachers actually do kind of use this stuff. And and it, it kind of tends to be more successful when people use, you know, uh, let's say commercial games and not sort of edutainment games, which are um, almost universally terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so God, I wish uh, I wish my podcasting partner, uh, Troy Goodfellow from Three Moves Ahead, uh, were here because he actually tends to go off on rants about this because... Mm. Um, I, I think he tends to be a bit less sanguine about the teaching possibilities of games because he finds that too often games have uh, what he calls hidden curricula. Ah, uh, uh, yes. And the problem is that you end up, in some ways, games can have the potential to be far more dishonest and distorting uh, than an academic text or, or any kind of text, uh, because you can interrogate the text and sort of, and, and can sort of like read between the lines and sort of identify its biases and, and what point of view it's coming from. Games have a way of sort of enveloping you within a system and teaching you the values of the systems of that system and then rewarding you for internalizing those, those biases of that system yeah. and then acting on them, uh, which means they can actually be pretty loaded as educational tools. Um, and it can be a little difficult to sort of use them responsibly or wisely. Uh, they may not always teach what they purport to teach. Uh, so, I, you know, I tend, to, I, I tend to be a little skeptical of, um, of, of just how useful games can be to, uh, to, 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 sort, of, to tort, sort of teach subjects. Uh, not to say they can't. Uh, but 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 I think it's they also have as much potential to be in fact even more distorting, uh, even more confusing. Um, 
That said, uh, so an interesting example came up on Through His Head the other day. I was talking with Rowan Kaiser, and he talked about a, um, a I think, a history professor or a, or a poli-sci professor uh, at his college who uh, basically modded a board game uh, about World War II mm. and had players had the class break up into groups uh, and take control of the major powers in, world, in the years leading up to World War II. But the wrinkle was... Um, it wasn't equally assigned. One person oh, yes. played Germany. One person played uh, the USSR. Twelve people played France. <laughs> and it sort of illustrated the totalitarian advantage. Uh, that, so why couldn't the democracies get their shit together in the 30s? Well, like students kind of lived that firsthand as they began arguing over every single course of action. And so like the totalitarian states were able to conceive and execute policy far, far faster uh, than their sort of disunited democratic rivals. And that seemed like a really, really cool uh, way of teaching a certain situation, a certain sort of history. But again, hidden curricula. Uh, It's also very easy to sort of look at that as uh, an indictment of those democracies. Right. I mean, certainly that is that is sort of how the, the fascists did, in fact, view the world. We can, you know, we can do, you know, we can act. They can't. They talk. They debate. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's it's an interesting case. It's a it's an eye opening uh, is an eye opening sort of uh, way to teach that subject. But at the same time, uh, what are the other values that sort of are attending that lesson? I don't have anywhere near sort of the the intellectual rigor uh, attending this that that Troy does. So, uh, the only thing I would add to that would be. Isn't there hidden curricula in everything? Isn't there sort of, you know, the whole history is written by the victors idea? Isn't there sort of a hidden curricula even mm-hmm. in the most robust text you can imagine? Um, I, I think it's just sort of, uh, I think it would probably be true of all media, although certainly it seems uh, more so in this case. I think maybe the best course of action here is, is is sort of what Kyle's getting at at the bottom of his email, where he kind of talks about forced to make decisions and learn how to deal with making those decisions. Sort of the experience of making a decision and actually having to live with it and uh, how instructive that can be. I think maybe maybe something is there. Maybe something, maybe the sort of best use of, of games or, or at least certain kinds of games or at least certain kinds of designs uh, could actually be very, very useful in the classroom. I do know that Valve had kind of a cool program going on with Portal and teaching math and physics. Now, I don't know exactly what they did with it. I know, uh, you know, there were some programming elements and they brought in a whole bunch of seventh and eighth graders. And this was a presentation I attended like six years ago at a Games for Change event, which, you know, we can talk about Games for Change some other time. But uh there seemed to be something of that as well. Uh, You know, maybe curricula that is less... I don't want to say subjective because that's not really fully getting at this, but, you know, history is a very fraught subject in terms of point of view. Something a little more cut and dry like math and science, um, there is the potential for sort of um, instructing, showing students something, allowing them to experience something, allowing them to interact with the system uh, where maybe that sort of hidden curricula is not as... Potentially damaging, I guess. You know, it's interesting. What, so I don't, I, I don't have a comprehensive like history of of wargaming. I don't, I, I can't claim expertise on, on the sure. subject. But <laughs> the other thing I find interesting 
at least to my knowledge, one of the real origins of wargaming is that it, it sort of rose um, among, unsurprisingly, maybe the Germans first. Sure. Uh, but in particular, <laughs> like Prussian uh, officer school. And one of the things that the reason it became sort of a teaching tool uh, was because what they were trying to do was create mid-level officers who could operate without orders from above. Who mm-hmm. could take the initiative? Uh, who could who could make decisions in uncertain situations? <laughs> uh, and so, a lot of like there were certain like Kobayashi Maru type situations where like the lesson of the scenario was your orders were basically worthless, and a smart officer would have looked at the the thing they saw happening before their eyes and discarded the orders and won the scenario. Uh, it was there were cases where like following orders was the losing play. Um, and so that's kind of one of the, like, so in addition to like Wargaming's tool as a way to like simulate, uh, wars in advance and figure out like what, how they would be fought and what the likely outcomes would be. The other part of it was to create a generation of people who could think, uh, and act somewhat independently of, of hierarchies. And I do sometimes wonder how interested our education system actually is in producing <laughs> people like that. Sure. Uh, to what degree is, creating people who seize the initiative and uh, and and act and sometimes act in contravention to authority, uh, to what degree is that actually a priority uh, in, in most education systems? And is that another reason why you don't see games being employed too often? Because a lot of your good games do kind of ask that ability to sort of self-direct. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of learning models tend to be a little bit top down. Yeah. And I know there are movements away from that. I don't mean to like paint with too broad a brush with, uh, with regard to the education system, but I I do kind of wonder if that's, if that's a factor in play as well. All right. On that note, I think it's time for us to talk about our weekend projects. Rob, have you been watching or reading or playing anything other, you know, other than zombie U or zombie, I guess without the U uh, that has been sort of setting your world on fire right now. Oh my God, yes. Yes. On Netflix, yes. there is a show called Occupied. Occupied. Yes. And let me tell you this. It is like, it is a Norwegian show, but I think made with uh, made by a French company as well. But it is, it, is a, it is a Norwegian show, but the way I can best describe it is uh, the West Wing meets Children of Men. What? Yeah, no, it's seriously good. Like I started watching oh it the God. other day and it's like, holy shit, this is amazing. It's set in this like near future where climate change like jacked up the climate so much that like Norway got hit by a hurricane. This is all before the show even starts. Oh, so shit. Norway gets hurt by, by a hurricane and that's kind of their oh shit moment, right? Yeah. Like we just like had our coast obliterated by a hurricane and we're in freaking Norway. And so <laughs> as a response, they elect a radical uh, Green Party politician prime minister of the country oh my god and his first act is like no we're not screwing around with this anymore we are taking carbon out of the economy entirely including <laughs> exports and norway's a major oil exporter he shuts it all down overnight and the show begins as he's about to like he's announcing that they're following through on this policy and 
in this first episode, there's all these hints that like the rest of Europe is not happy with this. They still need oil. And suddenly Norway's cutting it off. Uh, the U.S. has sort of retreated in isolationism and has bailed on NATO. Uh, so there's no one sort of securing the international order. And the first episode, as he's announcing uh, Norway's move to green energy, um, he's kidnapped by unknown, unknown kidnappers. And uh, it's all about like the main players are a radical left wing journalist, um, a a like recruiting poster bodyguard for the prime minister, uh, the prime minister himself, who alternately seems like this like weak like Neville Chamberlain type figure, but <laughs> also at the same time like a man of vision and principle. Um, there is a uh, a a a barrister. Um, so there's all these great characters, but. So he's kidnapped. And then when and then he's like mysteriously released. Oh my god. And when he appears again, he's like, We need to walk this entire thing back. Oh my god. And by the way, the Russians are coming in to help us administer our oil now. And that's the first episode. And the rest of the series, it goes like it's it unfolds like month by month, like how this like like soft invasion slowly starts to like create kind like cognitive dissonance among the political like leaders. Um, like the Norwegian military, like has no idea what his new role is. Um, nobody's certain, like, are, have we been invaded? Have we surrendered? Like, are we at war? Nobody knows. Uh, and it's just like episode by episode as the situation gets more and more fraught and things like slip farther and farther out of control. And it's all done in this like really stark, um, cold blooded, like Soderberghian, uh, like vision of the world, uh, and underlined, of course, by all this like beautiful icy Scandinavian uh, design. Oh my uh, god! And so, yeah, I just, I am, I am utterly hooked. Uh, it is, it is super. It's like it, it checks all the boxes on like, on, yeah. on like shit. Rob's, Rob loves like political <laughs> intrigue, um, Scandinavian design. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, uh, and, and then dystopian near future of uh, realpolitik. Oh my god. I'm starting this tonight. No question. That's checking a lot of boxes for me too. So yeah, that's oh man, that sounds amazing. Occupied. I literally just wrote that down. Um, so for myself, I already recommended Killing Time at Lightspeed, so I'm also going to recommend this show that I am obsessed with. And if you told me years ago that I'd be obsessed with a lifetime series. Lifetime is turning things around. Let me just say that first and foremost. So I'm watching a show called Unreal. And uh, my girlfriend turned me on to this. Unreal is a semi-autobiographical show uh, about a producer who is really, really, really good at manipulating the shit out of people on a shitty disgusting reality TV show that is basically The Bachelor. And I think the real life person who made the show worked on The Bachelor. Um, so you have this woman who, you know, she was a woman's studies major when she was in college. She's in her, maybe her early 30s. And she has been doing this for a long time. She's been producing reality TV, which really basically means setting people up against each other uh, to make good TV. And then, you know, sort of comforting people when they have a terrible day and when bad things happen to them. But also really just being a manipulative person who is who is just getting the best performance, quote unquote, out of everyone uh, in this, you know, unscripted, but still completely not real 
obviously, at all, uh, series. You have this other woman who is sort of the the executive producer of the show, who is like the head in charge, treats everyone like shit. She's this ice queen who is so, so good at getting these ratings. And this is like a billion, multi-billion dollar franchise. Um, and we have the, you know, the hot British guy who is sort of the bachelor this time. And he is, uh, he's only doing this so he can get publicity for like a new hotel he wants to open. And, you know, every, every one of these people in this world has a lot of motivations and an agenda. Uh, but I just can't get over sort of the, these two sort of core women in the, in the show who are just complicated and, have so much baggage and are doing, they're so, so, so smart. They're both so incredibly brilliant. But what they're doing is essentially like hurting a lot of people. They're hurting all these women that are sort of competing for the affections of this one man. They're literally like, you know, making America stupider by by sort of putting on this shitty false fairy tale and they know it and they know how evil the things they do are but they do them anyway because they're so good at it and they make so much money doing it and it oh my god it's just a fascinating fascinating uh you know it works as kind of a soap opera melodramatic thing sort of on its face and also just just how intelligently the show tackles the sort of mundane evil that they're doing by manipulating people's lives. It is, oh my God, it's so good. I'm so addicted. <laughs> um, yeah, it's called Unreal and you should totally watch it, especially if you hate reality TV um, because it's it, it takes a real big shit on things like The Bachelor. A very... A very well-deserved, yeah. really big shit. Yeah, no, uh, <laughs> I don't think anybody's like, oh no, not The Bachelor. What a fine institution. Yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> I don't feel like yeah, anybody's going... <laughs> <laughs> that that that, uh, that that show it belongs on the Rushmore of American television. Yes, yeah, it, it sure does. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my god, I just there, I had an ex who once made me watch a lot of reality TV. So this feels like a wonderful, you know, uh, cure for that. Even though it's like eight years later, it still feels like a wonderful cure for that. I was right about how awful this shit is, you know. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, watch Unreal if you want to get mad about that stuff. Uh, so with that, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. If you are enjoying our show, and we really do hope that you are, please do take a second and rate us on iTunes. It helps us out so, so much. And please do tell a friend. Uh, we would love to, to spread the beautiful word of Idle Weekend. And if you're, if you're having fun, we'd love it if you felt comfortable doing that too. And it means the world to us. So thank you if you are spreading the good word. Uh, you can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. Awesome. That was a blast. Yeah, that was really good. Felt good to be back in the saddle. <laughs>